Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben and you're listening to my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Need I explain what it is about, given the title? No, I thought not. It's really nice to have you along for episode 84, for which my guest is the legendary, sometimes controversial street photographer and Magnum member, Bruce Gilden. Before I introduce Bruce properly, a few things to say. Firstly, please leave a brief positive review on iTunes, not just a rating, a review if possible. Only has to be a couple of lines. If you're a UK-based listener, now there are 156 ratings on iTunes right now. 153 of which are five stars, though I do say that myself, and 99 actual reviews. So why not be the 100th reviewer? If you're listening in the States or anywhere outside the UK, please go for it. Far fewer reviews there. If you like the podcast and you think it's worth the price of a coffee and a donut every month, please sign up for a small recurring subscription at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice or make a larger one-off or occasional donation. Also, if you think it's high time you got yourself a really good website, but you're not into doing it yourself, I can sort that out for you using the only platform worth considering, Squarespace. There's no point in me offering my photography services on here, is there? That would be like trying to sell ice to Eskimos or something, or Inuits, to use the correct and more politically sensitive name. Now, just to briefly wade in on a couple of issues out in Photoland recently, there's been a right old kerfuffle this week over some images by an Italian photographer, Alessio Mamo, that featured on the World Press Photos Instagram feed. These were from a series he shot in India entitled Dreaming Food. And such was the social media shitstorm that ensued, the story made it into the mainstream media in a Guardian piece. Anyway, the point is, that's not what I want to talk about. You can Google it if you've been away on a recce to Saturn. I wanted to mention a special report that a lot of people will have seen online that was published recently in the Columbia Journalism Review entitled Photojournalism's Moment of Reckoning for which the journalist Kristen Chick carried out a five-month investigation into sexual misconduct among a number of male photographers, well-known ones, some of them. And Danielle Zaltman, who founded the organisation Women Photograph, and who you can listen to on episode 52 of this podcast, made the point on Twitter that, quote, the silence this week from male photographers in particular, in the wake of Kristen Chick's CGR piece, has been stunning. For those of you clamouring to call out one kind of structural injustice... Where are your voices here? End quote. Now, obviously, I read the piece in CJR and I shared it on social media and I invited others to do the same. And I chirped up on Twitter to little effect as usual. But I think Daniela, who's understandably pissed off, has a point here. Men need to stand up and be counted and to speak out. And the question is always, what the fuck am I going to say? That as a man, along with the vast majority of other men, I'm as appalled and disgusted and outraged by the behaviour of these inadequate, dickless, skeevy little sex pests as any woman. And where am I going to say it? You know, where it's not just going to get liked and forgotten in the same way as a video of a dog on a skateboard. And I guess the answer to the first question is, yeah, that would be a start. And as for the second question, I kind of realised, Ben, you know, you have a podcast you numpty. So this is me adding my small voice. Time's up, shitheads. Enough already. And Kristen Chick, fucking top-notch piece of journalism right there. Good freaking job. Hit her up on Twitter at Kristen Chick, K R 
I-S-T-E-N-C-H-I-C-K. Let her know you appreciate her work. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the brilliant Charcoal Book Club, the world's first book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. In case you don't already know, each month Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books directly to your door. Whether you're a professional artist or photographer with a stock library or a novice who's just beginning to build their collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. The club offers free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US and members get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles, members only pricing in their online bookstore and more. So I did receive my copy of Guts by Masaki Yamamoto. I was talking about that last time. I, I like it. It's a very uncompromising portrayal of his family. And yeah, it kind of is a black and white Japanese version of Razor Laugh in a way. Not there's anything wrong with that. It's all the better for it. So you too can receive such brilliant works if you uh, sign up to Charcoal Bot Club. They are, as usual, extending a very special introductory offer exclusively to small voice listeners when you sign up. Any photo book of your choice from their library for free. Go to charcoalbookclub.com and use a special code of small voice when you sign up to receive your free book. For the latest and greatest photo books delivered to your door with free shipping and no hassles, check out the charcoalbookclub.com where they are on a mission to inform the mind and inspire the soul. And many congratulations to Jesse from Charcoal and the family on the new arrival. So, on to my esteemed guest, an iconic street photographer with a unique style. Magnum Photos member Bruce Gilden was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1946. He went to Penn State University, but he found his sociology courses too boring for his temperament, so he quit college. He briefly toyed with the idea of being an actor, but in 1967 he decided to buy a camera and become a photographer. Although he did attend some evening classes at the School of Visual Arts in New York, Bruce mostly taught himself. His abiding fascination for life on the streets began in childhood and was the spark that inspired his first long-term personal projects, photographing in New York's Coney Island and then during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Over the years, he's produced long and detailed photographic projects in New York, Haiti, France, Ireland, India, Russia, Japan, England and of course America. Since the 70s, his work has been exhibited in museum and art galleries all over the world and is part of many collections. Bruce's trademark photographic style is defined by the dynamic accent of his pictures, its graphic qualities and his original and in-your-face manner of basically leaping out at passers-by to capture them instantaneously with stark direct flash and very often close in. Bruce has received many awards and grants for his work including a 2013 Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and has published 18 monographs. He joined Magnum Photos in 1998 and having lived most of his life in Manhattan now lives in Beacon, New York with his wife and three cats. So as you may know, Bruce Gilden is quite a divisive character. Some people obviously love his work to bits. Others feel his distinctive in-your-face style is a bit disrespectful and a little intrusive. His most recent work, in which he's shot detailed, super-sharp colour portraits of the underclass, the poor and downtrodden, those on the margins, whose all-too-apparently tough life experience is written on their often rather battered faces, has generated quite a lot of controversy and has come in for strong criticism. It's been described as ruthlessly unforgiving and as so-called poverty porn and being questioned as a latter-day freak show. And you will have to judge for yourself on this, as is very often the case with these controversies. I don't see it as a simple black and white issue, if you pardon the deliberate pun. It's way more nuanced than that for me. And 
There may be a valid point in this criticism, but what I can say is that finding out a bit about who Bruce is and hearing his own heartfelt justification of his work and his approach really helped me to put the issue into context and to at least understand where he's coming from, both literally and metaphorically. I think Bruce is a great example of someone who's developed a famous persona, in his case as this brash, unfeeling, no-messing-about-new-yoika. But that is just one facet of who he really is. The guy I met and watching a video getting tearful during an interaction with a mentally challenged guy is clearly a sweet, empathetic and sensitive human being. That's enough of my rambling. Here's the man himself, Bruce Gildon. How come you know so much about football? I've never met an American who knows so much about football as you do, Bruce. My daughter used to play. Did she? Yeah, but I, I hated football, you know, European football until uh, she started to play. I mean, I didn't understand the game. Um, I didn't find it interesting. Uh, now I really like a good football match. Not like last night, you know, but um, <laughs> I, I like good football, yeah. I thought it was all right for a while. It was looking quite promising for, for us for a while. Yeah, well, you didn't take advantage of no. your opportunities. And when you let a team hang around in all yeah. sports... Yeah, Croatia really got out of bed in the second half, didn't they? It was like the first half, I don't know, but then they just they just went for it and we, yeah, and you, we blew it. We, we did blew it. We snatched oh, you blew it. defeat from the hands of victory, as it were. Well, that's what I said when you scored after five minutes. I said that can either be very good or very bad, and mm. you took it in very bad fashion. That's right, yeah, no, I agree. <coughs> Excuse needed, me, I have a cold a needed little bit. needed to yeah. be 2-0 two, two up at half-time. Um, you're, you're doing a workshop. Do you like... Do you like teaching or is it more just a sort of kind of financial necessity? Um, do, you, do you get something out of it? Yeah, I guess I get, I get several things out of it. Uh, number one, it enables me to travel, mm. even though I've been to London many times. It, uh, I've made some, the guy who helps me now two times a week used to be my intern. He had taken a workshop with me in Tokyo. I sell some prints to people. And it also keeps me in touch sometimes with younger people. So it's nice, you know, most of the people are nice. <clears throat> some are okay photographers, some aren't. But, you know, it's fine. Also, I get paid. Mm. Your, uh, this, this, is, this workshop sort of entitled Be Yourself. Can you sort of expand on that a little in terms of... Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, I first started doing workshops many, many years ago. I would take people out and show them how I used the flash with the camera in one and the flash in another and you know I'd take I'd show them how it worked and then a certain segment of the class would start shooting like me for that week of course after the week's over they'll go back to doing what they normally do what's comfortable for them so I figured what's the point of this you know because several photographers or that I know to give workshops you know they go out they expect or the people since they're influenced by their teacher shoot like the photographer and what's the point Mm. That's not who they are, usually. Sometimes, of course, the two things come together, and someone in the class loves your pictures and wants to do like you, okay? So that's fine. But generally, that's not the case. So I figured out that everybody's different, so be yourself. And I try to give them an assignment that'll enable them to do that. Right, right. Yeah, because there's no point in them just trying to be you, as it were. I mean, there's... Well, there's de- they, you know. ca- they can't be me, I can't be them. Exactly, yeah. You know, how do you kind of be influenced by other people, but not to the point where you're kind of, uh, you know, just, just being a copycat or replicating what they're doing? Is that a, that's a difficult balance to, to get. Well, let's just say I learned my photography from looking at books and magazines or exhibitions, going looking at photographs. 
And there were people I liked, there were people I didn't like. So obviously, I would try to figure out by looking at a picture that I liked and the style that I thought I would be able to do and was comfortable for me. I would try to figure out what lens the photographer used, where the person stood. And of course, then you, you emulate that person somewhat. Okay, So I had several influences. And then they all would converge and it became Gildan. You know, yeah, I was yeah. lucky enough that way because my personality is strong enough. <clears throat> but in the beginning, excuse me, um, obviously, you know, you can see a little of this, a little of that. Mm. It's, it's natural. Yeah, who were those kind of people then? Who, who did well, you gravitate towards? Well, I gravitate toward Lisette Modell. You know, I became friendly with Leon Levenstein after. Um, mm. I liked and I met Ed, Ed Van Der Elskenis. Tomatsu I liked. Uh, there's a couple others I like, but I don't like them so much, so mm. I'm not going to mention them. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, yeah, as you say, you've, you've very much created your own voice, I suppose, is what it's really about, isn't it? Your kind of photographic voice. But how did this very distinctive um, style that you, you're famous for uh, evolve? Because, I mean, I'm sure most of my listeners will know exactly what your work is, but, you know, it's very direct, it's very in your face. You're sort of known to be this kind of quintessential New Yorker and that's very much part of your persona but I heard you talking about this this business whereby you because you didn't like processing film you had hundreds of rolls of film and at one time yeah yeah and at one time and 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 you know in looking at them I guess you started to to figure out where it was you wanted to how you wanted to get to a point where the pictures were good because you didn't find any good images well let's let me clarify Mm, what you're saying please do okay you have part of it right, the other part not right. Um, and I don't speak always the clearest, so I'm not faulting you. Mm. Um, I, had, I, done, I had started Coney Island. I had done a lot of Coney Island. Okay, so I thought, it's funny because, just to digress a little bit, I thought I started my New York pictures in 80 or 81. But I really started like 76 or 77 because I've just been going through it magnum all these old... I thought I lost all these negatives. So far, I can't find three negatives because we moved from New York City out to Beacon and I had a torn Achilles from a fight in Paris. Mm. And what happened is my wife did most of the packing. So all the negatives sort of <laughs> got thrown in 700 boxes, okay? And I had to move them with... I had a guy helping us to magnum. So I've been looking through negatives which are killing my eyes, and I'm going fast because I'm actually looking for the negative, the picture that I was looking for. Right, but, but in it, the process, you're discovering... Right, but in the midst of all of this, I, 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 found, I, I figured out, like, maybe why I started to use a lot of flash, okay? Maybe it's not true. And also, I picked out now, once I f- go through the contacts, which are all over the place, I picked out another 200 pictures that I might feel, you know... I don't think we're going to have 200, okay? But if, if I get 20 out of that, mm. that are pretty good, I'm, I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're thinking about maybe there's a book in these discoveries? Oh, there's definitely a book. Yeah, that'd I'm be not, great. Uh, I've shown a couple to people, you know, scans, and they're quite excited. Yeah. But the whole thing with the flash and the kind of, uh, you know, kind of jumping out at people... Was that partly just, you know, a kind of manifestation of your personality? Well, look, let's face it. Um, I was a good athlete, okay? Not on a Neymar, mm. you know, Ibrahimovic, you know, not that level, okay? I was a good basketball and baseball player. I was a good neighborhood schoolyard player. I played 
Connie Mack, Babe Ruth baseball. You know, I was a good player. So I'm very athletic, and I used, and also more so shy, I used all of that in my photography. So I was able to go close to someone, you know, and take a picture and, and form it very well because I could really just raise the camera up to my instant, instantaneously with or without the flesh and get a very good crop because mm. I was athletic. And like in basketball, I knew where the ball was going to come off. So I have that talent. Right. So, you know, I, I do who I am. Right. And, and But the point, going back to what we said about the early New York, because I went off the track, which I do occasionally, but mm. is that what I noticed is, look, nobody can do the same thing forever, okay? And if you look at, especially in the street, okay, most people done their good work early on. And if you continue to do in photography the same work that you did 20, 30 years previous, it's not going to be as good. Can't be. You don't have the same drive. You don't have the same passion. Yeah. You know, it's like you're not... Uh. So yeah. I was always very fascinated by the Japanese photographers. And I have, <coughs> excuse me, a, a, a pretty good collection of Japanese books. Martin Paul, as my friend said, I was the first one in the West to collect Japanese books. That was inspired by <coughs> the 72 or 74 show at the Museum of Art called New Japanese Photography. So by looking at all of these negatives, I saw that I have, in my mind, and I think I'm correct, I have a lot of good pictures. And maybe I just figured out it's time to go somewhere else because also as I was doing these pictures and since I was using a Leica which synchronized at a 50th of a second you can't use flash all the time mm. so there were times when I used the flash at times I didn't use the flash now I'm also very slow at changing I don't like to change only in wives I've had three but this one now July 30th will be married 27 years so it takes me time to switch. I wanted to use flash because I like film noir, I like the old mug shots. So what I noticed here, that maybe I just felt it was time for a change. And I transitioned. And, I, and I'm noticing this whole transition and I'm seeing you know, my early flash pictures, later flash pictures, to the point where it's almost using flash exclusively. And then the last couple of years that I was shooting in New York, I'm bad with the years. We moved in 2015. So let's say 2010 to 2000. I was totally bored in New York, okay? Because you'd been doing it for That's right. I couldn't years. do it any longer. Right. But I still went out. But I didn't give it the all-American uh, try, you know? So if you don't give it the all-American try, you're not going to get much. And I didn't. Mm. And I always wanted to do, like, these portraits here that was sitting amongst the farm boys and farm girls. Yeah, this is your more recent stuff, this kind of um, medium format color stuff and, we're, and digital stuff. We're gonna de definitely we're going to get onto that, but I think maybe we should fill in the gaps first. I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like if you're going to have a, a, a long career as you have, you've got to reinvent yourself in some way. Do you think that's basically true? Well, the, th the thing is... <clears throat> I never thought I'd be able or capable of reinventing myself, okay? Because 
as I was starting to say before, I don't know how far I got into it, but with the Japanese photographers, not only did I like their pictures, but a lot of them did other things after their first, you know, in a different vein, mm. still photographically. Of course, none of them did it as well as the first thing that they had done, which was the one that they were most inspired to do. Um, but I respected that. I think I've been lucky because I think I do this very well. So, like I did foreclosures also, which to me was a lot easier than doing anything else, just like portraits are easier, even though it's not easy. The picture either has to work or not. <clears throat> it's just easier in that when you're doing a portrait with, of somebody, if you know how to form a picture, they're standing there in front of you. It's not like you're not gonna, it's not gonna be spoiled by an unlucky accident. Mm. Though, even in these pictures, the backgrounds are very important. Right. I mean, no matter how close you are, what makes a picture is the details. Okay, so even though there's very little background to be seen, yes. it's still important to you. Oh, it's very important. Right. So in terms of like your formative experiences, um, you were born in Brooklyn, then you, I think, moved to Queens. So it was always New how York. How did you know? No, just kidding. <laughs> then, and, then I th and then obviously, as you've already said, you, you spent most of your life living in, in Manhattan. Tell me a little bit about you know, what Brooklyn was like uh, in, in your very early years. Well, um, I used to go out and play on the streets. I was only allowed on my block. I couldn't cross the street because it was too dangerous. Mm. I was always the type of kid... Well, I remember punching someone in the eye when I was in the first grade because he said something to me and I said, don't say it again, and I turned around and I belted him. I remember always wanting to play against two kids my own age because I thought I was better than them, and I was. I always wanted to, you know, when we went to the country, I wanted to ride the biggest horse, even though I couldn't ride, I did not ride at all. Mm. But there was a dark side to all of this because my father, I had a very, the things I know a child shouldn't know. Mm. And I think that's what made me what I am. Right. Um, and when you're a child, you don't know that anybody's any different than you, you know. And Yeah, you think your reality is everybody's reality. Yeah, right? I, you don't know any different. You know, I used to listen to their conversations and hear things, and I learned so much that hurt me. I mean, wow, I mean, it's lucky I found a positive outlet. Because mm. he was, uh, you've described him as a sort of gangster type. Yeah, right? well, he was a gangster type, and then he, I think, quit, but... I'm proud that he was a gangster type. That doesn't bother me at all, mm. you know, because regular businessmen are, are crooks. So, mm. you know, what's the difference of politicians? Yeah. It's just the other things that him and my mother did, you know, that I knew about that were really hurtful. Right, I mean, right. it would tear anyone's guts out if, you know. Yeah. And I knew about all that. And since I had the tough guy mentality teaching, that means you never said anything to anybody. Right. So you had to sort of keep it bottled up as it were mm -hmm. which i can imagine is pretty difficult and then yeah i mean it's uh, you've it's you've said you know in a matter of public record your mother took her own life yeah. which must have been just you know incre well, incredibly well it was very difficult because first of all my father died six months before that mm. my mother took her own life i didn't help her how old were you i don't really know the year but i was about roughly 40 two something like that okay so you were well into into your adulthood. yeah but i didn't help her right no I, I couldn't have helped her she was out of her mind but the thing is i, I you know she was had mental health problems yeah or? she i used to visit her in the mental institution right okay 
Yeah, so all that is... That was a good Christmas. I remember uh, taking two buses. We lived in Manhattan, my wife and I at that time, going to see my father in one hospital because he had a heart attack, and then going to see my mother in the crazy house where all the lunatics were coming at me, and I brought my mother food. She didn't want it because she was afraid she'd die from the bones. And all the lunatics, like Night of the Living Dead, they're coming at me for the food because they want the chicken or something, <laughs> whatever. But, um, you know, I make light of it, but it, yeah. it's... it's was pretty heavy yeah i can imagine and and as you say you know you kind of put all this into into your mm-hmm. work really i mean did, did you feel like you were trying to prove something to hit to your dad yes. you know you prove yourself to him yes by, worthy by being good at something yes and also i think you said you know in a way you're trying to get back at him because uh, you you yeah. mentioned that you know it, if anyone had done what you <laughs> do to people in the street you know he would have probably punched them so in a way mm-hmm. you know all that's clearly there, I think. So it's a lot of... But, you know, having said that, at the end of the day, if you're comfortable at what you're doing, you can do a lot of things that other people can't do if they're not comfortable. For example, um, for me, if you were to take a picture of my kid and you were across the street, I'll get more mad at you than if you were right in my face. Right. Yeah, Because I find like that sneaky. You're being furtive, yeah. Yes. And we all know that to take a good picture, unless you're asking someone, you know, to take their picture, we all know you have to be furtive, as you say, mm, okay? Mm. It's a better word than sneaky. Mm. Well, it's the same thing. Um, and then you had a bit of a drug period, didn't you? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> I had two drug periods. <laughs> right, okay. Um, yeah. And, and a I, big one after my mother committed suicide. I can imagine, Where right? I almost died, yeah. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, and there's no mystery there, really. You're trying to uh, deal no. with this shit. Um, I think, I mean, it, it kind of made me smile that your, your drug of choice was, was Coke because that fits your personality perfectly. Yeah, but if you know anything about Coke, uh, once you start doing a lot of it, you become like catatonic. Right. And very, you don't want to go out. You know, you don't want to talk. Right. In the beginning, it's like... Yeah, yeah. But after a while, it has the reverse effect. Okay. Which for you, you know, as someone who is out there with this kind of very energetic kind of street photography... Yeah, but vibe. it also, you see, there's another, there's another, like funny, I'm doing a series now on hookers, on crack and heroin which are done in a similar vein as the farm girls and farm boys. Ah, right. They're very strong pictures, and um, I'm dedicating that to my mother. Um, and, you know, one lady just said to me the other day, excuse me, when I say the other day, I mean last month, because we were, you know, doing, we went back to get some more women. And I understand all of this, because I myself was heavily into drugs. So she said to me, well, she said to me and my assistant while we were interviewing her that, you know, I asked her about all the cuts on her arms. Mm. So I had heard, I learned that in Romania when I was there, a lot of gypsies had cuts on their arms, but they would do it so they would get taken from prison to the hospital. You know, they did it intentionally, so this way it's easier in the hospital for the two or three days, whatever. So they cut themselves. This girl was a cutter since she's 12, and she had a, a child. The child, the mother took away from her because, you know, of her cutting and everything. She didn't know how far, I, you know, I'm only hearing one side of the story, but I can understand the mother's side, you know, if, without hearing her. Mm. So she said to me, so I said, how did the heroin come into this? She said she liked heroin because it cured her depression. 
and it cured her from cutting herself and everything. So I said, yeah, but that's level one. Now look where you are being a heroin addict. Isn't it time that you now stop this, mm. you know, and, and get on with your life? And I said, and she, she's one, a young girl. I don't know how, I don't remember how old she was. She might be 25, 28 years old. Pretty. I said to her, what would you like to do? She said, I'd like to be a zoologist. And I said, that's quite interesting. So I said, listen, why don't you go for it? But again, when she's ready, if she doesn't die, mm. she will go for it. I don't try to change people, but I understand that it's interesting that you're taking this drug that's really you know, terrible for you, and yet it helps her in a way from her depression. Yeah, you're self-medicating in one way or another. That's I mean, right. That's what drug addiction tends to be about. Yes. Well, then it's hard to put that particular genie back in the bowl. That's why I also self-medicated my, myself. Yeah, of course. Because I had too much to deal with. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't handle it. But I think it's interesting because I think, I think you know, people who um, are critical of your um, style of photography, and there are, there are people who have, who have been, um, I think knowing who you are to me seems like a very uh, it, it really helps to to put it all into context i think i mean you, you talk about how you like to sort of photograph people who've been bruised by life in mm -hmm. a way you know that's what we're looking it's very at very natural for me right as a child i liked the uh, the most extreme wrestler i liked um, the underdog i've always been for underdogs so, i mean you know to get sometimes people who criticize me they can go back and sit in their chair and they know nothing about life right i've had a pretty full life you know, pretty, well, I don't know what word to use, type of life, but... Colorful? Well, yes, colorful could be a word. I don't look at it as colorful. It's my life, you know, mm. it's the only thing I know. But the thing is, um, that's what separates these pictures from others because I, I know these people. Mm. I've suffered. I know what it is, you know, to have this, to have that, you know, something that to be looked on as not your average person. Right. And the others, you know, they pay lip service. They don't know much about life. You know, they think they do, and they're politically correct. I'm not politically correct, mm. and I'll never be politically correct. Well, I've heard you say you don't have any ethics, but I don't really believe that. Oh, I have tons of ethics. Yeah. That's a, someone asked me that the other night in, at the lecture, and uh, the thing is, uh, my wife told me, you said that once, and she said, Bruce, that's a stupid statement. <laughs> and it was a very poor statement on my part because I have a lot of ethics. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, I do. I yeah. mean, um, I have more ethics than all these people that claim to be, most of them that claim to be politically correct. Because I see the forest, you know, through the trees. Mm. In other words, it's great to talk about things. It's great to talk about diversity. It's great to talk about a lot of things. But what happens when your back is against the wall? How are you going to react? Mm. I know when I comment on something, that comment is made because I've already figured out how I'm going to react if my back was against the wall. You know, if, if the, as they say, the shit hit the fan. Because mm. I know things like that can happen. So, you know, I, have, I look in the mirror and I smile because of where I came from to where I am. And I, I do these pictures for me. It's, 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 it defines who I am. It's, you know, I'd love everybody to love them, but if they don't, too bad, what can I say? Well, you say you're photographing yourself. That's for, right. For the most part. And I also photograph myself. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about this new this newer work a little bit because I mean it's, it's sort of collectively it's known as as face and it's all in the same style. But you've got, as you say, different aspects of it because some of it is the, the farm boys and farm girls. Some of it was stuff you shot in state fairs. Some of it was here in the UK. You shot in in the Midlands. How did it come about? Because I think was it as a result of playing with the with the digital ca- camera? No. Well, what happened was this. Like I said before, I was very influenced by mugshots, okay? I mean, I, it's funny how these anonymous photographers took some of the most beautiful portraits right. in, the, in the history of photography, you know, you, with no aim at art, okay? Just, that was their job, that was their craft, okay? And I, I wanted to do it for years, and like I had said previously, I am slow to change. And what happened was we were doing a project in Miami Magnum postcards from America and Leica which had offered me previously in Wetzlar the Leica S camera and when they gave it to me I said to the guy you must be kidding me this is a truck I can't use this camera you know I weigh like 47 pounds (laughs) you know even in my heyday you know I I couldn't lift it you know So I, I tried it one day, okay? Because when the thing about postcards from America, well, not postcards from America, but on that project, you're put in a city. You have a week to two weeks. You have to get X amount of pictures. Hmm. You don't know where to go, what you're going to photograph. You don't know if you're going to find things you really like or find nothing. I mean, it's quite interesting. So they had a like S around. So I figured, I'll take it out. So my assistant at the time and I were driving through near Hialeah, and I saw this guy sitting at a bus stop, a mentally challenged person. And we stopped the car, I got out, and, I, and then he told me, I took a picture of him, and I said, that's the only picture in all my work with the face series that it doesn't have flesh. So, I like, you know, I had to cajole him because he wanted to get on the bus. I said, oh, you'll take the next bus, you know, come on. So it was okay. And I say it all started with one. And that's how it started. And I saw that that was the right camera for what I wanted to do. Right. Which is a little longer in focal length than 35. I think it's about a 42. So that was the only thing that I, I was, what might have been problematic for me. But in the end, it's a very good focal lens for my portraits because the portraits that I would do previously, the candid ones, like, say, in New York City or Haiti or wherever, were, were always done with a 28. Right. And that's d- due to not only how I like the look, but the use of flash was also done because the Leica rangefinder it doesn't have a very close... Focusing focus. point. Right, minimum focusing yes. point, yeah. So... If you're shooting at eight, you, you're better off shooting at 22 with the flash from the same distance because at eight, it's not going to be sharp. Right, right. So, <coughs> so all that, all that mm-hmm. famous stuff you did back in the day in New York, so that was with a 28 on the Leica and... Mostly, mostly. some are 35. Oh, 35. Because to me, there's a large difference between 28 and 35. Yeah. 35 is much more formal. Right. But you're range focusing and then 
you got them i'm just interested in getting this because uh, we don't really talk about this kind of stuff on on, on the podcast at all it's not really what it's about but um yeah you're sort of range focusing in, uh, a couple of feet or whatever and then well, it depends on what distance i am right but aren't you weren't you always generally going for the same that same distance so no there were three different distances. Oh, three different distances one would be waist up right one would be the face and one would be full length or you know several people right right okay so uh, the only problem with that is uh, once you get tired Sometimes you forget to change the uh, <laughs> the aperture. Yeah, yeah, and then you discover when you process it that it's, it's uh, not properly exposed. Yeah, it's way off. But um, but with this new stuff, of course, you can see what you're you're getting. That's the that's the the thing with the digital. I don't know whether that's necessarily always. Oh, it's very necessary because if I and and that's I'm glad you brought that up for two reasons. Because first of all, like S was is only in digital, so I had no choice. Mm. And now I prefer. I'm not saying I prefer, but the color in the digital is great. I don't prefer the black and white in relation to film, okay? But I'm, that's what I do now. It's digital, okay? It's going to be for everything. And the other thing is that with these portraits, if I didn't have a digital camera, I would probably have one quarter of the pictures I have here. Because sometimes I'm able to get the picture in one shot. Other times... It takes 10, 15 minutes, and I don't know these people. You know, I, I didn't have a, they don't have an appointment with me to do a, a shoot. So, you know, you feel a little rushed and everything. And some people are really cool. They say, I got plenty of time. But like the farm kids, they're busy, they're working, or they have to show. And um, if I didn't have digital, I would have maybe an ear cut off, or maybe the form is perfect, but the intensity's not there in the eyes. Right. So digital makes this possible. Yeah. Otherwise... You can, you can be certain. Oh, otherwise, I, wouldn't, I, I definitely would tell you I would have... I'm just being... Estimating one quarter of the amount of pictures. Mm -hmm. So thank you, digital. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess, you know, part of the criticism has been that a lot of these people, you know, they're poor, um, they're... <laughs> I, lo um, I love that kind of criticism. Yeah, and... and you and, know Why? Go on. I mean, <laughs> to me, it's so ridiculous. The, the point is because that these people they're, are they're, being... they're, they're like, It's like colonializing a, a country, okay? In other words, if somebody has pimples, that means they're not well-adjusted. Because in our country, in the Western world, flawlessness. You have to be flawless. Yeah. So all of this, you know, you pick up a magazine, a young kid, and you have to have big breasts. You have to have clear skin. You have to weigh 102 pounds. You know how much damage this does? And for the psyche of the, these people who make a critique like that, mm. who've never been in these people's shoes or anybody's shoes like that, is that you might have more grief with somebody who is beautiful, who thinks, oh, I have one pimp. Oh, oh wait a second. My nose, even though she has, the, or he has the perfect nose, is a little bit too long. So these people are being so illogically judgmental in that, you know, somebody, let's say here, has pimples. Wow, he can't be photographed or she mm -hmm. can't because she has pimples. Wow, no, not, I mean, seriously, you, you can't do that. And they're putting, see, a lot of these people are putting their viewpoints or what they think their viewpoint should be on work that somebody else does. And you can't do that. It's like me traveling to Haiti. Do I, am I going to expect to see the same things or the same attitudes as in New York? I can't look at them as I would, you know, people in New York. I've never heard anyone, 
rarely comment on my Haiti pictures. Why? Because mm. the Haitians are exotic. It's a poor country. It's not us. It's not my brother. It's not my uncle. It's not my cousin. It's not me, okay? I mean, these, these people are... I have no respect for those people, mm. literally. Mm. I mean, uh, you know... Were you, were you surprised by the criticism, though? Or, or were you sort of almost expecting it? Or it criticism of what? Of the, these particular images, especially the ones which are showing people who are, you know, look pretty rough and beaten up by life and, and you mean uh, the kids here no i mean i think more like the the adult ones where you know they're kind of consistently nothing surprises me you know it's like i don't read social media i you know be great if everybody loves you know all your pictures be great if everybody loves you but a lot of these people talk about me like they know about me like they're my best friend mm. And what gives them the right to comment on anything? They've never been in the street. Mm. They don't know what it is to take pictures. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I get criticism because that means I'm doing something right. right. Well, I was going to say... I'm affecting people. Yeah, in a way, it's all about really, you know, it, especially now with the way that the world is, it's, it's quite hard to, to get anyone to stop and look at your images for more than three seconds, you know, is, is quite a challenge. I guess that's always been the challenge, but now it's more difficult. So in a way, you know, you're doing your job by drawing attention to, to things, even if it's, you know, look, if, if it's you controversy. If you don't look at it, how can you change it? Right. I mean, so I put it out there to look at it, you know. Like, if you were in New York, how many people even recognize middle America? Right. You know, come on. We're, we're New Yorkers. We're this, we're that, you know. I learned a lot by, you know, I learned that these kids for this series, you know, do a lot of things, uh, multifaceted. They're bright, a lot of them. They're, you know, they're kids. Yeah, they're, they're pretty normal kids, yeah. most of these. I mean, yeah, of course they got zits, but <laughs> they're teenagers. Well, all kids have zits. <laughs> That's what I'm just saying. Not all. Um, but I mean... But some of the other stuff, I mean, especially the stuff you did in, in Appalachia, which I think was only a couple of days. Um, I don't even know how you can consider Appalachia because of the fact I think I did two face portraits in Appalachia. Oh, really? Yeah. That you, I mean, I don't think that's a fair a statement, to, you know. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you can use something else. Well, I've just heard people talking about that stuff as though, as though you know, calling it poverty porn and, and that kind of thing and, and, and kind of going into it about how, you know, you're sort of representing those people in a, in a, in a very negative light. One second, I, I have a question to ask. Those people are there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Case closed. Right. They're there. I was there for two days. And the funny thing is someone, because, you know, really came down on it, and the guy, he has this ideal, idealistic view. I'm not going to comment on that, but the thing is that there were, I, most of my pictures there, a couple were in church. They're not really... The one or two portraits I did are, you know, lady with a lined face. I mean, come on. I don't even know what they're talking right, about. Right, right. I think the problem is to kind of you know, to distinguish between the different sets and where you took them. Um, certainly the stuff that you did here in, in the Midlands, you know, we're talking about some fairly downtrodden-looking characters. Characters being the operative word, I think, in, in your But that's, that's what I've always been interested yeah. in. Well, you said one of, one of the ladies, was, you know, thought she looked beautiful. She said she looked beautiful. Yeah, that, and that's the other thing. You know, I pay attention to these people. Mm. One guy who I photographed, I think his name is Peter. He, you know, I saw him, very scrawny legs and shorts. I, I think he, he was sick. And 
I asked him, can I photograph you? We talked for 20 minutes. We could have talked for two hours. And I, I pictured, it was sad for me because I pictured him going back, needing to have conversation, have contact with another person. And I'm not a humanitarian, and I don't claim to be, but I picture him going back to his little room with a little black and white television being so lonely and probably not well. And I made his day. Mm. Well, the other lady who had lipstick on her forehead all over, she said, can I see the picture? I showed it to her. And I said, what do you think? She said, I'm beautiful. So, you know, there's also this thing where, and I don't do it for that reason, but I, I make some people's day. I mean, it's all nice and good. You know, it's like saying a lot of people in this world who aren't threatened physically or, you know, in their country can say, oh, I really like this or I really like that. Until you have been out there and done it and been in that position, you can't really comment on how you'll react. And I go, I enjoy these people. They enjoy me. Mm. And... And, and, you know, what's the, do you get their feedback on their own pictures? I mean, do, they, do you normally show them what you've, no. what you've got? But, I mean, if they you, ask, I show them. Yeah, yeah. Look, like I said to you, one lady who I was very surprised, it's not a great picture, I was in, taken in Massachusetts at a fair. Pretty lady, she reminded me of Vivian Lee, a little older. A little older, you know, she was 45, not older than Vivian Lee at the end, but... I, I took the picture. It's an okay picture. She was so happy to be photographed by me because I'm pretty, pretty well known. And it's not a, a flattering picture. It's not, a, it's not unflattering. So it depends who you ask. Right. I mean, like I said, I, I once photographed, uh, I won't mention the guy's name because I think he's a jerk. Um, somebody for a German magazine, a director, had like 10 minutes. I did a a waste-up picture, a really boring, nothing picture. I mean, that anybody could do and would do. The magazine called me and said, we can't use it. I said, why not? He said, his nose is too big. So, and there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's relatively good-looking. So that's my response. Mm. You probably have more trouble with celebrities, you know, where everything has to be airbrushed. You got to photograph me from one angle, you know. Right, and also they've got the power to, like, you know, make these decisions and veto stuff. And magazines are just kind of, I think, a bit gutless, really, in the sense of that. Totally gutless, but also don't forget if they don't acquiesce to them. Yeah, that might. means they will never have anything in their magazine right. of that person. Yeah, exactly. And then they go bust, which which is happening anyway, regardless. But you've never been much of a really you've never been much of an assignment guy, really, have you? No, uh, I've done assignments. I know you have, but you don't. It's not really. No, I, your I like thing. to do commissions. Right. And I think I do my commissions pretty well because I'm able to shoot fast, and I'm also able to adjust to what, you know, to get something, mm. hopefully. Mm. Obviously, some commissions are better than others. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I like commissions. Yeah. And I, I've done a lot of fashion. Really? Huh. Ton. Mm. Uh, Vogue Am, New York Times Magazine. I've probably done about 80 fashion jobs. That's interesting. That's about as far away from no, your it isn't, normal wheelhouse. I'm very good with textiles. All oh, right, okay. I have an innate uh, eye for textiles. Uh? I mean, I just have it. Yeah. Was it important to you when you got into Magnum, was that a, a sort of inflection point in your career in terms of it being, you know, a good thing for, you, for it? 
Well, let me say one thing before that, because there's a statement uh, in relation to what we've just been talking about. Please do. Okay. Can you get in a little... Oh, sorry. Closer? It's, no, it's what Robert Frank said, who, by the way, never influenced me. You know, I like some of the pictures, but he never was an influence on me. Um, he, he said it's important to see what's invisible to the others. And quite poetic, because he's a pretty good writer. You know, he used to write little letters from New York to Creative Camera Magazine in the 60s. So I have about three or four dozen. Wow, they're pretty good. He, he's, and that line sums it up. Mm. You know, the artist is ahead of the curve. And, you know, people don't want to look at it, you know, too bad. Look, what they, look what's in the galleries today. I mean, come on. Yeah, look yeah. what's in the museums. I mean, to me, a lot of it is pretty bad. And it's not because I like conceptual work. I like all kinds of work. It's just not very good. And some of it isn't even formed well. I mean, so, you know, people are also afraid to take chances. People, and I know to the victor belong this, you know, go to spoils. If I didn't take a chance, I would have never continued with photography. Yeah. So I think that's the large victory, you know. Well, I've heard you say that, you know, life is mainly about overcoming fears. I mean, that's right. is, can you sort of expand on that a little? I've had every fear imaginable. You know, fear of dying, fear of being strangled, because I had a tracheotomy when I was five, ah. so I, I couldn't breathe, so I was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night. Maybe it comes from that. Mm. But, you know, I had a lot of fears, fear of failing, fear of tons of things. But yet I go out and I do it. What's the takeaway then, that you've just got to push through those, those mm -hmm. fears and, and kind of yeah. do it I have anyway. atrial fibrillation, which just means my heart, you know, doesn't beat in correct rhythm for the last 18 years. When I go away alone, you know, I say, wait a second, you know, I, I, you think about all these things, mm. but listen, something means a lot to you, you'll do it. And the photography does. Yes. Well, I mean, it's not easy at 71 to go and leave your, your wife and your three cats. Yeah. My daughter I don't see as often. She doesn't live with us. She's 25. Um, but you want to do it, you got to go and do it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, you're saying for, for a while... In New York, you were sort of spinning your wheels for, yes. for, for a certain period. Um, you weren't really... But I could have done the same work somewhere else. Not the same, you know, the same type of work. Yeah, but you didn't quit. The point is, I guess, that, no. you know, you've got, you got, you got to carry on. What am on. I going to do? Exactly. Well, it's like, so I heard someone say this the other day on a, on a podcast. I think it was some kind of legendary old magi magicians and, and someone... I thought you were going to say legendary old midget. <laughs> getting excited. Okay. Magician, and he said, uh, you know, are you thinking about retiring? And he was like, retiring from what? There's no dis distinction between life and what you, what you do in a, in a way. Of course, and the other thing is, for example, when you retire, at least in my case, you'll get old. I'm not saying we don't get old. We have to make concessions to our age. It's like street photography. You know, I can still bend and jump around and everything, but I'm not as fast as I used to. I'm not as coordinated as, as I once was. Mm. So you have to figure out a way to get your pictures in relation to how old you are or how good a physical condition you're in. Yeah, so it keeps you young, really, if you, if you keep yeah. working in a way. Yeah, that makes, it, that makes perfect sense. And I work on negative energy. But what do you mean by that, though? It means that, you know, you criticize me. That'll inspire me more. Right. It will just, that will just yeah. put fire in your belly. And I'm not doing it for you. It's just who I am. Yeah. Because that's what I want to do. Well, I think, you know, when you've been doing it for 50 years, you've, you talk a little bit about the kind of difference between love and passion and how, you know, one, I'm not sure quite 
what it is, but I think it's that is it that one is one is you know easier to sustain. In other words, you know, well, love it, love is a long term thing. Passion can kind yeah, of burn no, it's out. It's amazing that I'm passionate and I can still sustain it. So you, so that's you, what the amazing thing is because my pictures are about passion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look at what I do, how I do it. Mm. And it's amazing that I can still sustain it at a high level. Right, yeah, exactly. What have you learned about yourself through being a photographer? Let me think a second before I answer that. Um, I learned that um, I always knew I'm competitive, but I compete with myself. I learned that if you want to do something, you'll find a way to do it. I mean, there are many times in my life that I wanted to go somewhere or do something that I didn't have the funds to do it, so you learn how to deal with that. You learn, it's like baseball. If you get three hits in ten times at bat, you're in the Hall of Fame. You learn that, you know, if you're not doing well photographically, when you're young, you say, oh, you know, you worry about it. You get, I have a stomach ache today, but it's not from worrying. It's, I don't know what it is. I hope I'm not getting sick, but... Uh, you worry, oh, I haven't taken a good picture in so long, but when you get older, you learn that, okay, it's, it's going to happen. We don't know if it's tomorrow, next week, or the next month, but it'll happen. Mm. You've learned patience. You've learned to take all the criticism. You've learned to be rejected. And you've also learned to smile when you take a wonderful picture. Yeah. So it's all worthwhile. All right. And you've learned to fail because I think I hear it a lot and it comes up a bit, you know, among, among you know, your peers. But, you know, photography is mostly about failing. You know, it's like in, in terms of how many great pictures can you really take? You have to, I suppose all creative endeavours, you know, it applies. But, um, you know, c- could you kind of talk about that a little bit? In which way? I'm just I wondering understand if the question. You, do you agree with, do, I mean, do you basically agree with that? With premise what? that you know that there's it's 99% failure 1% success oh yeah of course but you have to you have to have that type of character you know that's able to take it you know and the other big thing which I don't think we discussed is that do you take pictures for the love of photography and you know who you are or do you sell out and do commercial type pictures and some people who call themselves artists are really commercial photographers mm. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? That's a, that's a balance that, that is very difficult to strike. Well, it depends because, how pure, you know, it depends right. what your inclination is. Yeah. It's not a question of how pure you are, it's a question of your inclination. My inclination is to take good pictures. I, I never took pictures for somebody else, mm. you know, to please somebody else. I have to please me. If I please me, that's enough. Right, right. I mean, of course, I'd like to please the whole world, but... Yeah, but then, you know, but obviously one has to try and earn a living and that can sometimes mean doing stuff that obviously you wouldn't necessarily do otherwise what's your sort of income pie chart look like in terms of where you know not like what are the you know do you sell a lot of prints or depends yeah has it i guess it's changed over the years as well well. there are times i sell a lot of prints at times i don't sell a ton of prints Mm. um like i think all of the these pictures, the portraits, should all be in museums, you know, because they're really good. Mm. Um, but, you know, I can't comment on why or why not. Okay, I don't push in that direction. I don't push anything to be sold, really. No, right. So, you know, when I go places, things happen. But 
My pie chart is, you know, I do workshops, I get commissions, I sell prints, I do a few assignments. I used to do more assignments, but Magnum hasn't been getting me a lot of assignments, so uh, I'm not crying over it. You know, it just is what it is. Because, you know, they, they can't sell everybody and they only have X amount of people to sell. Of course, You know yeah. what I mean? To do the selling. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. But I'm still existing. Well, it sounds like you've got that kind of, you know, quite a fairly a fairly typical kind of desirable balance there between those different income streams. Well, you know. for example, like if I wanted workshops, I could probably do a workshop every week if I wanted right. to. I mean, you know, uh, you can I have do another that. one coming up in New York in September and I have one at the Royal Photographic Society in Bristol mm. in November and that's all I, you know, I didn't seek these out. They saw, saw yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, what advice do you think you would give your 20-year-old self looking back at that Younger I won't say what Leon Levenstein told me. What did he say? He said, I never should have been a photographer. <laughs> um, it's a very tough path. Yeah. And if you don't have a certain character, a personality, I wouldn't advise it to do it. But as I tell everybody who asks me, you know, sometimes people ask me things. And the young people, I say, if it's in your heart, go for it. Because if you don't go for it, you'll always regret it and you'll never know what could have been. Mm. But also, I think another thing that's quite important is you have a lot of people taking a lot of photographs today that are pretty bad. And I think they should stop <laughs> if they you know, think they're going to be photographers. We're not talking about the guy out there taking a selfie or what have you. But, um, but how, you know, what, the, one of the interesting questions I was, comes up for me is like, how, how do you, where's the, the, the line between kind of, determination and being delusional about how good you are because it's a very difficult one to find you know, isn't it I, I don't know where the line is you know people might say about me he should stop he's no good but I know I'm really good so I don't worry about yeah, that but right. the thing is you know some people do delude themselves and there are other people that are very good that can't sell a picture mm. I mean you know I know some people that are very good and they can't get work at all and they deserve work. Yeah, yeah. So, and there are other people that aren't very good. And what 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 concerns me a lot is a lot of young people don't know the history of photography. And I think if you do something, you should be a student of the game. Because, for example, in my case, like I said previously, I learned my photography from looking at exhibitions, books, magazines. I knew what came before me as best as I could. I'm sure I, I don't know everything. And that's how I learned. So my goal was to develop my own vision and also try to build on what those people who I liked had done. So now you have a lot of people, it's like you can go to a show and see these people who do portraits or whatever, and you could switch 50 names. You wouldn't know who did the picture. And these people don't have a knowledge of the past. Mm. So they think they're doing something groundbreaking. But if I go to see something in a, in, a, in a book or in a body of work or in a show, and I say, wow, it looks like um, Chauncey Hare, you know, 1970s. Uh, why would someone consider something good that's been done 50 years ago and better 50 years ago? 
Yeah. So I think this is, this is a, a very tough thing. And also I think a lot of people that make choices don't have very good taste. Mm. And that's my opinion. You're not the first person to, 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 to mention this about sort of, you know, the younger generation not knowing who the hell people are, which is kind of weird because it's, would be, it's, it's, it's easier now. To, yeah, to, like, all you've got to do is sit in front of your bloody computer and, and do a bit of Googling. Like, back in the day, you had to go to the library, even well, if you had I one. I had to order Creative Camera Magazine, <laughs> magazines from France, a camera magazine from Switzerland. Yeah, you had I mean, to really had work a, at it. I, I had no money. And I ordered all these magazines. They weren't that expensive, but I had no money. And, and, I, and I made it my business to do that. Right. And like you say, it's so easy now. You just have to punch a few buttons yeah. and everything comes up. Yeah. Like the guy who works with me now that used to be my intern, who's you know pretty good photographer. He's only 23. He has supposedly on his machine 500 profiles of 500 photographers. You know, so he knows all, and I've turned him on to not all of those, but a lot. Right. And then he'll show me the younger generation, and a lot of them, wow, they leave a lot to be desired when he shows me, okay? Mm. But you never had anyone to, you never had a mentor as such when you were starting out or when you were coming up? Well, I had people that influenced me, but Mm. no, I I kept separate. Because, you know, probably not having the confidence and also being smart enough to say, well, wait a second. If I show my pictures to, I'm not going to mention any names because it doesn't matter, but if I show my pictures to someone famous and he likes my Coney Island series, he's going to go to Coney Island, do the pictures, maybe not the same as me, maybe better, maybe not as good, then he'll get all the recognition and I'll look like I'm following him. Yeah. So I just didn't trust people that way. Now I'm very trusting. I can tell you all I do, how I do it. I don't care because I also realize that I have somewhat success. And the other thing I also realize is other people don't have my eye. Like I don't have someone else's eye. Mm. So I'm very open and free with information. But do you like getting kind of input? I mean, any of your, your Magnum colleagues, you've mentioned that Martin Parr's a good friend. I mean, do, do you sort of, is it, is it nice to have those people around if you feel like you want a, an opinion or are you just completely self-contained in that I sense? don't need any opinions on my work. <laughs> okay, so you're very No, no, self- but I'm not, sound, I don't want me to sound arrogant. No, but that's just uh, who you are. and I are friends and I ask him certain things because he's quite smart about tons of things. But it's not about if my work is good or not. We don't, I don't discuss that because I know what's good and I know what's not good. Mm. And it's like there was a very interesting thing told to me by uh, <laughs> someone in my agency, I won't mention who, about someone else. He came, he came over and he said, I was so flattered because so-and-so asked me what I thought of his pictures. He said, well, you know, that person asked me, you know, me, what, what I thought. I was so happy till I realized that he was testing me. It's the same with me. If you tell me you like that, I'll know about your taste. Right. And okay. So he was. This was a, someone who was. He, he thought to be kind of. He was older or senior in the pecking order, as it were. Uh, he was better. <laughs> he was better. Okay. It's, okay. It's simple. Definitely no okay. names then. Artistically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've, ne- you've never considered quitting, you've ne- that's never really been... I always consider quitting. Do you? Yeah. What brings you to feel that way? Um, Just fatigue? Look, 
it's very hard to do what I do, okay? It's very taxing. I mean, like when I'm doing that series on hookers and on crack and cocaine, I go to the worst areas. Mm. I mean, you got to really be on your toes. You know, I mean, I'm good at that. I'm really excellent. That's what people don't realize also is that how good I am. I can read a situation. I'm, that's my strength because that's how I found out all the information about my parents. Right. By listening, you know, getting hurt. I don't like to be hurt, okay? I'm, that's not my goal in life. Um, so it's kind of survival tactic, really. Yeah, total. But the thing is, it's not easy to leave your wife for six months a year when you're older. You know, you like to... You know, years ago, I could go for two weeks. That was a cakewalk. Now going for six days is like an eternity. Mm. So th that's my problem. That's no one else's problem, okay? I don't expect anything, anybody to say, oh, wow, that's something. No. And, you know, I'm one that also divides people. So the thing is, and I hear this ridiculous statements, you know, written about me or sometimes some... A photographer who talks about other photographers in print, which I think is totally uh, ridiculous. Uh, it means you're a, you're a child, okay? You don't do that. That's, that's just, you don't, that's something you don't do. My wife who interviewed Schwarzenegger and Stallone was, was amazed that someone would do that. That's totally classless, okay? Mm. And, you know, it doesn't bother me because who's saying it, okay? But the thing is, it, it has an effect in some way. You know, you just say, okay, I don't need this any longer, but it does inspire me, so why would I quit? It's just tiring. When I go home now, I have to rest for one or two days. You know, I can't just jump up and go somewhere else. Yeah, of course, of course. And, um, you know, you say to yourself, listen, I, I have not a bad life. I have a great wife, I have three cats. Uh, you know, I can get up and do what I want. Do I have to really go through all of this? Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm still doing the things that people at my age generally don't do. I mean, going to yeah, terrible places, going all over, um, Is that walking gonna... eight miles a day. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot for any of us, really. Well, when I did the state fairs last summer, we walked anywhere from six miles to 12 miles for, let's say, 20 some odd days out of 28 days. I mean, I was tired. Mm. It's tiring. So, but then you realize so much of you know photography is kind of very literally doing that kind of the, the, the legwork, as it were. You know, as, well, as much as taking pictures. Well, if you want to do it, you have to do it. Yeah, I'm not crying the blues. I'm just saying yeah, that yeah. Uh, you put it. What you put in is what you get out. Of course, and you had to. You've moved out of Manhattan now. You don't. You don't live in New York anymore, or not in the city. No, I live in Beacon, mm. which is 60 miles outside of New York, which was a smart move. Because I don't have to walk up five flights of stairs anymore each day. Um, Do you miss the vibe, though? No. You spent enough time there, you probably had no, enough. No, because the vibe is in my head. Right. I don't, I don't need that, you know. Uh, I don't socialize much. I don't go to parties. I don't go to openings. Um, I stay by myself a lot. Because hmm. um, I don't like the gentrification of the cities. I mean, it's good in one aspect. You have more restaurants, you know, more in a certain way, more choices, less bookstores, um, less of the things that are really important. I find New York City becoming soulless because of the people that live there. 
Um, I find a lot of the younger people rude. I mean, they don't pay attention. They knock into you. I'm 68 years old then, let's say, and they're 25. They bang into you. They look at you like you're, uh, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, to me, if I knock into someone, I say, excuse me. Mm. Um, so there's fewer characters and, 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 you know, maybe it's a bit more... It's more homogeneous. Yeah, now. yeah. All over. Yeah. But you can still find characters and, you know, you go out of the city, you can find them, you know. It's like where I live, there aren't a lot of characters, but if you go probably 10, 15 miles out a little, you know, you'll, you'll find them. Mm. So what's your main focus now? Is it trying to finish this hookers and... Uh, well, I have a lot of main focuses. I have a book coming out, Syracuse, 1981, in September. So is this the stuff you found? I mean, is that that's, partly... No, that's not, not what I lost, but I have enough material to have a book. It has a lot of... Um, Pictures from the State Fair has a lot of mentally challenged people because uh, in Syracuse they have a lot of mentally challenged people and they have a lot of hospitals and they have a lot of places where they stay, you know, like four, six, eight people and one or two people to take care of them and they go every day to do peace work somewhere. So that was a great surprise in 81. I used to go out and buy them chocolate bars every day and we'd, we'd talk a little or what have you. I had fun. Yeah, you kind of relate to, to those people, don't you? Oh, I've yes, seen, I do very much. I've seen you do. I feel very comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And I do, I, I also, I enjoy them. You know, um, I saw you in a little video when you were in, in, in here in, in the Midlands and um, I think you were in one of those places, um, uh, you know, taking pictures of people and you were quite emotional. And I think, you know, you're, you're actually very sensitive behind this kind of persona uh, of being the kind well, I'm of... I'm a very sensitive person. Right, that's what I'm I mean, it, that's a reality, okay? So when people are critical, you know, they should be, they should look no further than their nose yeah. to see, you know, these, these pictures are sensitive. I mean, I couldn't get these pictures if I wasn't sensitive. No, exactly. I wanted to ask you about the, the kid who's crying. Um, I punched him in the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it is, it is quite arresting to see a kid clearly upset. Just t tell us quickly what, why he was crying. Well, I was lucky. He wasn't lucky, I mean, because he was crying, okay, but I had nothing to do with that. Um, we had arrived in Iowa from Milwaukee from one fair to the next, right? So, um, and we get out of the car, we go over to the barn, you know, where they're having a contest, and all of a sudden I see this kid being let out with his cow getting disqualified. I don't know why. I asked people, either the cow was in heat or whatever. Okay, now you have to understand that this is like the World Cup or the Olympics now, okay? You know, only certain cows are able to, or kids with their cow are able to make it that far. And he's crying oh, uncontrollably. So then... <laughs> I don't want to tell you the whole story. That's, that's not, I'll leave out a part. There's nothing bad about me. So I see his mother, and I say to her, would it be possible to photograph the kid? Because, I mean, I know he's crying and everything. And she said, fine. So we took about seven or eight shots. This is the only one that's good, and it's, so, it's such a beautiful picture. And it's iconic. A kid and I explained to him, I said, listen, I don't think he was listening to me. I said, listen, 
I've been where you are. And at your age, I think he's 12 years old, you think this is the end of the world. I said, in a couple of years, you'll look back and you'll see that this is a great learning experience and you will benefit from what happened here now. It is not the end of the world, okay? And he continued crying. I took the picture and that was it. <laughs> but, so you know, I, I empathize with him. Yeah, yeah. But I had, I had a, I, the picture was important to me. Right. So I'm not going to uh, drop the camera, you know, and say, and say no. But that, that also brings to one other point that I asked the mother and she said, okay. Some people could even go so far and say, how can you take a picture of a kid crying? She was all right with it. That's her son. You know, she had a feel for him because she was a real competitor to mother. This I can tell you. So, you know, if it's okay with her, um, right. and I was fortunate enough to get that picture. Why shouldn't it be okay with anyone else? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Um, well, I might use that one to accompany the, the podcast. Um, but thank you Bruce so much it has been great to talk to you and to meet you and I really appreciate you giving me the time to chat thanks so much thank you